0: Father, thank you that that is indeed true. Nothing, nothing compares to your embrace. Forgive us for going after the embrace of so many other things, so many other people first before coming to you. We thank you that indeed that forgiveness is real for us again tonight. No matter what we've run after this week, no matter what we've been distracted by in thought, word, or deed, your embrace is still there. In some way, every day, we are prodigals, and we are older brothers in that story, and we are resisting. And yet, there is never a moment that you are not our father. Happy to have us home. May you glorify yourself now as we gather around your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Good evening. Go ahead and take a seat, gang. Good to have you here with us for worship tonight. It's it's been a busy day here at the church. Our host church that meets here in the morning was having a Mother's Day party uh, downstairs. And so we're up here tonight, uh, even though lately we've been sort of meeting more often downstairs. Uh, because of that party, we decided to, to go ahead and set up here. And it's been a busy time. And then technology was giving us all sorts of trouble. And so Viet stood up here in a pinch and did what needed to be done. So thank you, Viette, for doing that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> To go you got a round of applause, man! Congrats. Uh, so tonight's uh, sermon text comes from John chapter 10, uh, verses 22 through 30. Fairly short little passage. We're still in the season of Easter, thus I have the famous, one of the very famous uh, Easter pieces of art. It's uh, this one depicts Thomas feeling the wounds of Jesus, the scars of Jesus. Of course, tonight we're not talking about Thomas, but I just feel. That the resurrection uh, of all the depictions of the resurrection, this is one of my absolute favorites throughout history, and so um, I figured I'd throw that up there as a reminder that we're still in this 50-day season where we celebrate the resurrection. So let's read John 10 verses 22 through t- uh, 22 through 30. It says this: At that time, the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter. Well, I think most of you who know me know that before I moved east, initially to Staten Island and then eventually here in Manhattan, uh, I was the pastor of my home church, the church that I actually was converted in as a teenager in Southern California. Now, just to give you a, a little bit of history, before I was converted... Uh, and certainly for some time even after, there was no things about me that would have suggested to the world around me that I would ever, ever be a pastor. There was nothing about me. That's not, I mean, I wasn't like some kind of crazed monster or something. I wasn't, you know, just, you know, wreaking havoc everywhere, everywhere I went, but... But, I mean, the truth is, by the end of my sophomore year in high school, I had failed about half of all my classes. I, you know, was smoking in the bathroom as often as possible at school, among other things. But, yeah, that. I went to parties and was, you know, I was just kind of a class clown. I just didn't care about what was going on. It was, And it was at that point that my parents had had enough. Basically, it was we had a choice. Either I was going to go to continuation school, uh, which was not a safe alternative or... They could homeschool me. And my parents decided to homeschool me. And it was right around that time that I had come to see Jesus as Lord. And so that really kind of changed everything. So flash forward around 15 years later. I am now the pastor of the church that I was converted in, was brought into. And we've just placed an ad in a local paper with a big picture of me and my wife and our two kids in the ad. You know, like come to Victoria Community Church. You know, very suburban, friendly, yeah, that's where we're at. And it's not but a day or two later, a call comes into the office at of church. And the caller says, hello, is this, um, is this Eric Sorensen? I said, yes, it is. He said, the Eric Sorensen that went to Etiwanda High School? I said, yep, that's me. He said, this is Bill Thompson. I'm changing his name for the sake of this being public, but uh, he says, we went to school together. Do you remember me? I said, oh, yeah, sure, of course, I remember you. How you doing, man? He says, yeah, 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 yeah I'm doing good, I'm gonna do good. But um, I was just sitting here reading this paper, and I saw your picture, and I just couldn't believe that it was really you, so I had to call to make sure that my eyes were actually seeing what they were seeing. Are you really a pastor? I said yeah yeah i know uh it's a bit surprising but hey man i'm living proof god can save anybody and he can use anybody how you doing he's like i'm i'm good that's all i wanted to know see ya. you know that was about <laughs> it you see my my friend my old friend wanted to see that i was the real deal that was really what he was He's like really I, I just don't even have a way to process that and and as we look over the life of of jesus Uh, It strikes me that there are times in his life where uh, people say the same type of thing to him. Really? I mean, Joseph the carpenter's boy? Who does he think he is? Now, obviously, people had great reason to doubt me becoming a pastor because I am a sinful man. But Jesus never was. Nevertheless, they wanted to know, Jesus, are you the real deal? How do you know that Jesus is who he says he is? In numerous conversations with skeptics over the years, I've been asked that question. How do you really, really know that Jesus is the one, the way? The objection goes something like this, hey, other religions claim to be true too. How can you be so sure that Jesus is it? So, here's how Jesus answered in our text, all right? That's, that's I think, what, what he does here. First, he says this. Uh, first, it's very clear, because of his word. Because of his word. He's asked, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. Be obvious about it. Just say it. Be blunt. Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. In other words, I have been clear in what I have spoken that I am the Lord. Fact is, all throughout the Gospels, Jesus makes clear declarations that he's the Son of God, the Son of Man, and God of very God. For example, in the moments just preceding this question, Jesus calls himself, quote, the Good Shepherd. This is an allusion to the psalm we read earlier, Psalm 23, where God is spoken of as the good shepherd. A little earlier than this, he proclaims that he is, I am the bread of of life. He says, I am the bread of life, and I am the light of the world. He says, I am the vine. Once again, an allusion to Old Testament imagery for God. He says to the Jewish people, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Not a way, a truth, and a life, but the. No one comes to The Father, except by me. In John 8, he simply is bold enough to just call himself the divine name that God gave himself when speaking to Moses. He says, I am. I am. And in this text, he even says, I and the Father are one. Over and over, his word is clear I am the Lord. So it is a little, I don't know. I mean, it's a little irrational to ask Christians, why do you have to be so exclusive? Can't you just believe that all paths lead to God or something like that? And the reason it's a little irrational is, I mean, first of all, every religion believes they have at least some corner on truth. I mean, it's not just Christians. Everybody believes that they've got a right idea about something. No one is willfully believing something that they think is wrong. Uh, So everybody kind of does that, but, but, I mean, Christians are just looking at what Jesus is reported to have said, and it's just so clear over and over and over again. he's saying, I'm God. So if we're going to be Christians, there's sort of no way around saying the same thing about them. But it's not merely the clear declaration of his word that shows he's the Lord. It is also the wisdom of his word. Think about the Sermon on the Mount or the parables. Numerous places throughout the Gospels were told that the people marveled at his word. They were astonished at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority. As much as the Pharisees and scribes and other religious leaders sought to trap him, they never really could and he would always outsmart them. One listens to his word, and at first it seems so unnatural, even scandalously contrary to us. Blessed are the poor in spirit, the mourners, the meek, blessed are the losers, and those who pick up their cross are blessed. It all seems really, really strange and contrary and unnatural. But then we consider that in our lives as we actually live them, even if we wish it wasn't this way, it is truly only those who can admit their need for help, that can get well. Just as Jesus says, that's what he means when he says the poor in spirit. He's just another way of saying, blessed are you who know that you don't got it all together. That's why programs like Alcoholics Anonymous and Celebrate Recovery have been so incredibly successful. Why? The prerequisite for getting in? Alcoholic. I'm an addict. I'm a mess. Consider his parables. Are there any illustrations that touch man's condition more than the parable of the prodigal son, or, or maybe the good Samaritan? I remember some years ago I was still at the church in California, and I decided that instead of preaching the parable of the prodigal son, uh, I would just sort of read it. Just let it do what it does. Just let the story speak for itself. And I added very few comments in it. I just wanted people to hear the story, to be caught up in the narrative. And after I got done, a man who had not been a believer before the service, older gentleman, came up to me with tears in his eyes and said, that story is my story. See, what's striking about that is 2,000 years later, the story resonates. We all know what it feels like to be lost and confused and feel far from home. And so we see the words power. Jesus speaks and things happen, storms stop, people hear him and go away new. He predicts certain things to come to pass, like, for example, the destruction of the Jewish temple, and it does, it comes to pass. So, Jesus' word is what he points to. Listen to what I say. I am who I say I am. But, that leads to the question, why should we believe his word? I mean, this is essentially only so far, what I'm giving you so far is like, we should believe the Bible because the Bible. That's, you know, beep, that's a circular argument. I realize that. So then what does Jesus say? Well, he says you should believe him because of his works. Jesus continues with his protesters, I told you and you do not believe the works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. And again, verse 38, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Now, fact is, Jesus was known for performing miracles. But the skeptic out there Maybe the skeptic in here says, eh, but that's just the Bible that says that. And of course, the Bible's biased. The disciples wanted to sell the story of a miracle worker. Well, that's actually not accurate. For one thing, other religions teach the same thing about them. For example, based on Surah 2 and 43 of the Quran, Islam says Jesus did indeed do miracles. Islam teaches that. Jewish Talmud says that one of the reasons Jesus was executed, the Talmud was a long sort of record of rabbinical teachings and sayings and writings. And in their own history, they say that the reason Jesus was executed is because he, quote, blasphemed and practiced sorcery. In other words, miracles. They called it sorcery, but he was doing things they couldn't explain. As well, a Roman historian named Josephus describes Jesus as a man known for, again, performing miracles. Now, fair enough, these claims don't actually prove that Jesus did them. Get that. What they do prove is that Jesus, if he was known for anything, it was his ability to do things that could not be explained naturally. To vindicate his teachings, Jesus heals the sick, he resuscitates the dead, he feeds the multitudes, he gives the blind sight, he walks on water, and most importantly, he rises from the dead himself. And so Peter, in agreement with Jesus in our text, would base Christianity on Jesus' miracles, saying in his Pentecost sermon, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, is Lord. The Apostle Paul adds later in his epistle to the Romans Jesus was, quote, declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness. Why? By his resurrection from the dead. So the claim of the Bible is what differentiates Jesus from, you know, the crazies out there that would claim to be Messiah. He's actually doing things that only God can do. And he's doing it in historically verifiable ways, as we talked about just a couple of weeks at Easter, weeks ago at Easter. It's not done, as the Apostle Paul says, in some corner of the world that no one knows about. It's done in public for everyone to see. But there's another side to his works that I think is worthy of our attention, and that is also the perfection of his works. Remember, Jesus says that he came to fulfill God's law, or in other words, he came to live the perfect life for sinners. When his interlocutors question him, he says things like, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these good works are you going to stone me? He constantly challenges them, saying, Prove that I've ever done anything wrong. And the fact is, if Jesus had even sinned once in thought, word, or deed, he wouldn't be qualified to be the Savior be the Messiah, the world. But thanks be to God. We read in the book of Hebrews, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. First Peter 2 confirms, saying he committed no sin. And yet, Jesus did not live performing miracles and exuding perfection in the way we might expect. He does all this in the exact way that so many of us wouldn't do if we had this much power. He does it by getting his hands dirty with the lowly and the meek and the powerless, the outsider and the marginalized and the refugee. He does all of it with compassion and grace for those beneath him. You might not know this, but there are other writings from later on in the second century, early third century, that claim to be narratives about Jesus's life too. Most reputable scholars dismiss them as being complete myth. I mean, they're not taken seriously. You will see specials every once in a while on the History Channel or A&E talking about it like, the Gospel of Judas, Ooh. you know, it's a, the, the Gospel of Thomas, you know, and, and it's all just kind of, you no. Know, Scholars know that these things were written way too late to be actual eyewitness testimony of Jesus' life. But here's another reason that they don't believe him. The narratives show Jesus doing miracles, but doing crazy kinds of miracles. Like, in contrast to the historical Gospels, Jesus is shown to make birds out of thin air, like, "woo," and then the bird, like, flies away And he's shown, like, he, in one gospel, he becomes a giant. He turns himself into, you know, like Ant-Man in, in Endgames. You know? And there's all these, sort of, like, really sort of fantastical miracles. And, and you know why? Because human nature, want, like, loves this idea. But when Jesus is actually here in the flesh and he's doing things, it's the most earthy thing you can think of. How does he heal a blind man? Spits in some dirt, rubs some mud on his eyes. Healed. So earthy. He touches lepers. He gets down in the dirt. He does the same thing here with you and I today. All these works, Jesus' miracles, the perfection, the compassion, testify to us that he is indeed who he said he is. And what is the result of Jesus being who he said he is for you and me? Well, listen to what he says. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life. And they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand my father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand if you're curious there's greek concordances out there that you can look up the words to this text go ahead and look up the word no one and what you'll find is something fascinating in greek it is literally no one no one nothing can snatch you out of the father's hand because Jesus is who he said he is nothing can change that relationship between you his sheep And he, the good shepherd, nothing, no one, nobody. Because as the apostle Paul says, you are more than conquerors through him who loved you. The end of Romans 8, he says, what can separate us from the love of Christ? And he lists every possible thing that you think might just be able to do it. And what's his final answer? None of that is good enough. Not a single one challenges the grip of the Father. Because Jesus is who he said he is and did what he promised he'd do by dying on the cross for sinners. He is now the shepherd that leads you to green pastures, guiding you by his word. Because Jesus is who he said he is, you are known, truly, intimately known, The word for known there in verse 27 was the same word in Jewish idiom actually for for, uh, the marital relationship. It's as intimate as it gets. And yet he loves you still. Because Jesus is who he said he is, you were given eternal life. Death is merely a little nappy for the believer on their way to glory. Because Jesus is who he said he is, you can walk fearless Not worrying if you still have eternal life tomorrow or worry that if you mess up, God will let you go. No! It's not possible. Because Jesus is who he said he is. You will never be snatched out of the Father's hand. So now you're just free to be sheep grazing in the fields of his grace and mercy. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for allowing us to be sheep that just get to graze in your fields of abundance. I pray now as we prepare to eat from the table that you have prepared for us right here and right now. That you would nourish our faith, strengthen our faith, and give us the confidence to walk in the knowledge That we are in good hands, strong hands, capable hands that will never let us go. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.